point. We're living in a, you know, a modern age of uh, the new psychedelic renaissance. And I thought, this is, this is not real. This is, uh, uh, my gosh, I'm on the radio. People hear me. How we give to others and affect others' lives and uh, what we do with it is important. Don't focus on the rest of the world, just focus on your own life. And facts can't deal with emotions. It's, it's like apples and oranges. From his age and I'm age, I think we all, all, all be called the wood age. You're not picking a president, you're actually <laughs> picking a roommate. Because you don't know what their story is. You don't know what pain they're dealing with. Always part of me wanted an audience. It's naive to think that human beings have stopped evolving. Uh, the people are purple. The, the world is a very rich place if you start exploring. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the podcast Point Counterpoint. I'm your host, Chris Wright. Uh, this is a Counterpoint Media production. And today I brought on Daniel Sanderson. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Daniel Sanderson, and I'm... I'm uh... The most the most relevant thing is that I'm a, a philosopher and uh, the owner of a media outlet called Planksip. Uh, so, yeah, that's probably the most relevant for the conversation. I think. Sure, sure. We can just start with the what got you interested in philosophy. What's your what's your background there? Uh, my background was um, a very natural form of 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 philosophy, um, something that I wasn't even really aware of. I would say back in 2016, I could barely make myself through uh, some of these really dense philosophy books, like uh, like something from Descartes or Hegel or, or Schopenhauer or something like that. It'd just be like too hard for me to to concentrate on. Um, somebody told me one time it's, and I can empathize with it. You read one paragraph and you're like, I don't understand anything in that paragraph. I got to reread it. And then how many attempts before you're like, I'm just... I'm not ready for this, right? And so um, I thought of that as a challenge. And uh, surprisingly, there's a lot of philosophy groups around. Um, I think I used a combination of uh, Meetup, right? This one particular platform where there's a lot of groups that, um, that meet up and do that. I also volunteered with a local university to run um, philosophy cafes. And uh, so it kind of, I guess it kind of started from there. All right. And uh, you, 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 you said that you were, you were mostly influenced by Platonic thinking. Would you, would you explain that, how you use the, the Platonic philosophy to influence your own thought? Yeah, I, I, I think I approached it very objectively. Um, I've gone to um, a variety of different <clears throat> sources or resources turn to and continue to continue to I continue to turn to them. So for example, um, the closest proximity that we would see to Plato would be uh, other than Socrates, <laughs> which would yeah. be would be Aristotle, right? And um, as a layman coming into this, you start to think, well, do I pick Aristotle? Do I pick Plato? And you realize history kind of did that. They, it, it kind of went down two kind of paths. And then academically, academically, we, we kind of summarize the Platonic piece as being something that eventually led to religion, right? Um, you know, that monotheistic tradition. And then we, you know, we also say that, um, or ideological thinking, 
right? If you really want to put it into a box. The other one is um, Aristotle and Aristotle's, um, you know, keep it grounded sort of thing and trying to figure out, uh, it, it, like empirically look at and count things and make observations in the world, right? And um, so when I do those two as a comparison, I think they work really well together. Um, and I think that it's, it's really in, in a, in its entirety requires both of them uh, extensively and necessary for both of those to be, it's not an ideological binary choice one way or another. It's how do we do that? How do we work with those two kinds of um, spaces, right? And I think that we can learn a lot from that because if that's your starting point, um, what, do we, what can we derive in terms of wisdom? then you're not really taking a position as you're right or you're wrong, right? And it's not entirely a, a pluralist equal sort of relativist position either. It's a real, uh, I think, it's a helpful position. It's a helpful position and uh, ultimately still gives 100% of the uh, autonomy to the individual. But uh, I think intuitively we, we know what uh, provides more value. And uh, I think maybe maybe we can be a little bit secular and secular or like cir circle <laughs> cyclical <laughs> in time we 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 could get to a point where we maybe emphasize one or the other right and i i would never say that's part of you know my idea of how i view the world but i think as a metaphor i could describe that to you you can understand what i'm talking about and then i think the idea about description is that this is that pathway into subjectivity that I think is the most efficient. You can understand what I'm talking about, and we haven't crossed the line to say that this is a, a universal, essential way that the universe is structured, right? Where, where academics seem to want to like push right there, right? It's like they want to go right for, and and I think there's a really important uh, other step that's um, that's needed before you you rush to that um finish line yeah it's kind of like a you uh the one thing you mentioned reminded me of the you know the famous painting the school of athens and you have you know plato pointing up aristotle pointing down and uh it kind of shows the two different ways of thinking but really they really do work together very well i mean with with without plato you'd have you would have no aristotle uh there you know the, it kind of focuses on two different things that one one way i've seen it described is uh you know, when, when you read Aristotle, you read De Anima or something, and uh, you're going through, and you're like, yep, yep, makes sense, makes sense. Uh, you know, it's, uh, yep, good good conclusion, you know, completely solid, makes complete sense, uh, very logical, analytical. And then you're reading Plato, and it's like, yes, it's, <laughs> it's a very different feeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, that's a little bit revealing. So I want to I share that experience with you. So, um Let's say you put it on a frustration scale and you said, well, look, I, I really, you know, the neurons that are firing, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pleasure neurons. I'm reading it, uh, you know, the, uh, the axioms and the statements and the syllogisms, they all make sense. They all play out. And then it's all like, ding, 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 right? Like, <laughs> but when you read Plato, it's like contradiction, frustration, right? So is that, is that really what you're saying? Like, 
I mean, it's great observation, but would you say that's how you would balance the two? I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's contradictory. It's just they, they just you just they just come to it's more it's it's more intuitive. Like it's you 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 it, it's more of like a of a revelation type of experience where it's like a you see and just it just automatically clicks. You just you you just you know uh, can, it's more it's more literature because it's not it's not as uh, you know, analytical, you know, professional philosophy in the same way that Aristotle is. Yeah, he wrote it in more of a sort of a layman's type of thing. Uh, so in more understandable, whereas Aristotle, where it's, it's very clear, understandable, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not in that uh, kind of popular yeah. style. Yeah, I totally, I mean, I totally. The dialogue. And so somebody who might be your uh, nemesis might say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, say, you know, that experience that you're describing is like, I can't stand the logical part of Aristotle, but I can, I can love the world and how he taps into an imaginative, you know, sort of thing. Like you, you can, you can start to kind of categorize these two kinds of people. And just from an observation standpoint, and you're going to say, you know, we're probably a mix of both of those, right. But people may gravitate towards maybe one way or, or another. And, uh, and, I, and so I think the plurality that we introduced or that I was talking about is, um, is is a network effect. It's an aggregate effect that you have, you know, people. It's not like unlimited perspectives. You typically take and consume that information in that particular way. Where we're in a, a frustrating or maybe amazing time is that we have such an abundance to, uh, um, to evergreen content in addition to a whole bunch of noise. And... Uh, you know, we're not all philosophers. We're usually relegated to the smallest section in the bookstore. You know, I mean, self-help is 10 times bigger than philosophy section, you know, and, uh, you know, that saddens me. That's, uh, it, it means that we have, um, um, we have a shallow society and we're not doing our job as philosophers and, uh, we can do better. Um, yeah, it's, it saddens me as well. I, I, you know, I, I, I love, you know, I, I love philosophy. I love, uh, I'd love for more people to be interested in it, but unfortunately it's the, the, a lot of the writing is probably not accessible to, you know, most people are just, it's not presented in an interesting enough way or people don't, don't get that, that healthy introduction to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, to change the topic a little bit, um, do you play video games? Not really uh, no. no well my i have an xbox right yeah. and uh my my son has an xbox and i don't know how many, he doesn't play it as much anymore but i play this game called destiny mm -hmm. and um i just think it's uh it's an amazing game right you know so you can i mean it's a shooter game right so i you know i mean i'm not trying to go down a pathway or endorse any kind of shooting it's just uh, i don't think it makes me more aggressive not saying that that doesn't do it to some people, but for me, it's just, it's, it's cool to be kind of like a, like a, you know, like a military dude in the future running around kind of shooting aliens. Right? It's fun. Yeah. So anyways, um, what I understood is that there's kind of some lumps you have to pay in order to myelinate anything or grow any sort of like real attachment to things. We do see this in a religious context context with like rolling of the rosary beads and stuff like that. It's that tactile sort of 
And we have this ability now to tap into a video game, which anybody that's not seeing me in the video, and it's just on that, you've got my hands like this uh, controller of an of a Xbox controller out in front of me, the thumbs going and, you know, fingers moving and stuff like that, right? Well, this is directly tapping into, like, very quick problem-solving ability, even stuff that's very autonomous, right? Like movement and, and everything. So it's a quite an interesting, I think it's just a marvel to look at it in that particular way. And yet the social commentary is very much about, um, you know, this is going to degrade society and we're going to turn into this or that or blah, you know, it's just so much fear and trepidation around every almost benign sort of like activity. Right. And, and excess attribution to like causality, you know, there's a, a, a shooting somewhere and it's like, well, there's too much violence in the video. It's like, come on. Right. Like, okay, let's eliminate all that. Now will it disappear? I mean, come on. Are you really that? It's, it's not inherent. irrational. <laughs> yeah. Of course, like anything, it can be misused, but it's not, it can be used for good. Certainly those video games. Yeah, but I like what you said about about humans are very tactile people. Are, you know, where we we really connect more to something when it's when it's when we can really feel it. We can engage in all the senses, and that's a really it's a very Aristotelian way of seeing things. Is that you know we're not, we're not like these. Uh, you know, of course, the Aristotelian soul is like uh, the the soul is not some separate thing that's trapped inside the body. It's like the the this, the soul and the and the body are you know together combined within one uh, hylomorphic union, uh, and so you know we 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 connect to the universals through the senses hmm. and the imagination, right? And the imagination, yep. Because um, so and get, I think this is we, this we is get our input, uh, through the senses that then goes to the imagination. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, and 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 I've, and I've thought about this because um, it does. It comes up, um, I think, especially in. Uh, I think probably Descartes forward, but more like um, Immanuel Kant. And um, I kind of have a unique framing on that. It's not a. a a conclusion by any means and it's not intended to to devalue any of the value of Immanuel Kant uh, on forward but I found that in that particular time period Newton this is a there's an there's a there's a part of the influence of Isaac Newton and the deterministic godlike quality that that the scientific community kind of morphed into Right. I mean, you, you saw the emergence of, of somebody with you, you see a lot of ambition in culture from academics. So you'll see Marx trying to take on this, the, the huge ambition of um, trying to describe sociology. And this is what Marxism, um, you know, that's Marxism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have Immanuel Kant, who tried to uh, empiricize mm -hmm. philosophy. And I would say that he was largely successful, but um, ultimately is the framing and the explanation and the description of the world uh, any, any better in comparison to to the Greeks, right? So that's that, that qualifier is better. Mm -hmm. And um, 
is it easier or simpler to understand or does it relegate it into uh, the complexity of, of um, academic interpretation and a new version of a priestly class where even the priests don't agree and the layman has an, an, any idea of how to intuitively feel what it means to be a Kantian. They mm -hmm. have to be told by somebody what it feels like to be a Kantian and be like, so I'm feeling this. And so I think you have to take it down to its um, core elements. And I think that um, this is where a platonic philosophy is maybe undervalued because it's kind of prematurely dismissed. But, let, you know, let's let's take a, a point and say that our worlds are constructed in our imaginations right now. Let's be skeptical about that right away and say, obviously, the real world is not is not created in our imaginations. One's nothing and the other one's something right you know and physics doesn't work that way right okay um but we all have to run through your senses as you mentioned we have to that's our intake valve right this is how we live is based off of the intake of of that of that information stream coming into our and descartes does an amazing job describing that um I think what's difficult about it is how intuitive, how intuitive it is to fill out that portion that is subjectivity and how to bring it into um, something like the Greeks would try and do, try and make it wholesome, right? Now, in, our, in my opinion, in our most recent version of, um, I guess we'd say modernity, monotheism, and on forward, we've taken this ideal of the Greeks, this monotheistic god of wisdoms, right, with an S, plurality, and we all know that there's a move from polytheism to monotheism, but it originated from this concept of good, so good became god, and the, the, the pagan worship of sun became very uh, suited to this lineage form of transmission from, you know, father to son and mother to daughter, and, you know, these values that you transfer down through family units. And uh, lo and behold, you've got all these ideological forms that start to emerge in, uh, in, uh, in, in various different um, forms, uh, you know, throughout religion, right? And they're great models. They're ideal, in fact. And so, you know, that's where I can see the criticism Plato emerging from. But I can also see that um, Plato's capability is... Um, if on a fundamental level, you say, okay, well, what is he describing? He's describing our ability to form abstract thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so before we put any other information or contaminate that with, that is the essence of what it means to be human, right? Like, um, it, you may derive something from it and it may be something completely different uh, or something, it may blossom into something different, like Chris Wright may become X, Y, or Z, or what it means to be Chris in the essence of you, um, you know, has all the potential that your, um, that your imagination can actually materialize and is, or replicate in the minds of, 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 of your network, right? I don't mean social book, social network, I mean, in, in who you've touched and affected and who you've been a part of, right? 
Okay. And uh, that's, that's quite remarkable because that exists in a, a shared kind of shared imagination. When I say pink elephant, you instantly can form that same image. And since it's so natural, um, I think people even forget how, how amazing that is. Okay. Um, something interested me because you mentioned about uh, the move from polytheism to monotheism. Maybe um, there's actually a lot of uh, re research that's been done into actually it. Um, there's actually a lot of evidence that shows that it was more likely that it actually went uh, from monotheism more to polytheism actually, uh, like original in, initially. In mm -hmm. that, if, in fact, if you look at like Hinduism or Shintoism actually, like, especially mm -hmm. Shintoism, we'll, I'll take as an example. Um, if if you were to ask like the av average person that that follows Shintoism, and you ask them how many gods do you worship, they'd say one. Uh, but the thing is, all these different communities uh, have different names uh, for the same god. But then what happened is Japan wanted to have a unified religion, even though there's all, they're, they're folk religions. And so mm -hmm. they unified them all under one thing of Shintoism and said, these are all our gods. But they really, if you were to ask any individual member, they'd say one. And the same with Hinduism, you'd say they... Um, Initially, it was like, you know, there's Shiva, Brahman, but it was all uh, one thing. And then eventually it got separated into classifying them as separate gods. Yeah, you're right. No, you're right. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. and, you know, and so you just say, you know, is it is it one of these things like the liar's paradox where you could say, um, this sentence is false, right? If you write that statement, well, it's a paradox. Your mind kind of rings, you know, shuts yeah. down. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you explain that to me, I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. My frame of context was just the um, the Greek mm -hmm. religion, right? Yeah. At that time of like 500 BC, to mm -hmm. then where did it go from there? And then mm -hmm. I've, I've I've had people not challenge but comment on that exact same point. And some people say, well, no, uh, the Abrahamic religion or the Jewish tradition happened before and this and that, and blah. <laughs> right? So I, I try and leave that out. But you say it's like there's this ideal of hero worship that comes out of Homer, right? And mm -hmm. so part of the intentional uh, yeah. project that somebody like Plato tried to do was take all the amazing new discoveries that his his brain and his network is his culture is actually revealing to him, right? He actually really thought it was more about remembering than it was because it's like the stuff was already there in, in the ether, even though ether, we know I'm not saying ether is real, but it's all there, right? And there's these forms, right? So it's about how do you, how do you shape them and pull them into reality and make use of them? Right. And so the materialist is going to say, Oh, I can't, I cannot accept 90% of what you said there. Right. And you have to say to me, say, look, use your imagination. This is something that you have to conceptualize in your mind first. And then that together, let's figure out how we could test that. But you're actually putting in this subjective thing. Now, and why it was different from what you explained, I had a timeline difference. Like I had a specific isolated timeline in mind. And you're absolutely right. Like even the Upanishads, it just means sitting next to right and very much it was the upanishad prior to the ancient greece and then also egyptian egyptian influences right they influenced they had direct influence in those in those those um 
in, in, in the Western development of the Western um, tradition, right? But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, I think my point still holds true that it went from a, in Greece, it went from a, like the, the Greeks, right, who were shaping and forming this starting point. It went from Zeus and all the polytheistic gods, right, the pagan worshipers, went, it went all the way down and it, it started to form itself in the Greek ideal of mm -hmm. perfected perfectibility, the gold mm -hmm. Aristotle's golden mean. This was, it didn't matter Plato or Socrates, it was about cultivating virtue and um, becoming a better noble man. It, it, that's, that's what it was um, intended to do. And you say, well, did it do it? Um, and of course, if you're the skeptic and you say, well, there's still slavery, there's this and that, I don't know if we have the ability to turn instantly into something perfect. But what the point was is that we were thinking about how to become in that particular way, right? And realizing that what we imagined and then what we moved towards primarily through the vehicle of ethical behavior is, is, is a way to shape and form our, our, our world of judgments and a way to, to, I guess, like organically and intellectually um, it's more than intellectually, but it's just kind of like the ideal birthing place of, of, of culture, right? And they're like, and it's not just degrees. It's like, these are the core things that are required for that soil to be as rich as possible, to, meta, to use that metaphor, right? For things to grow. And uh, what emerged? Democracy and science and, you know, these types of things. So I think, are we better off for that? Um, I hope so. I think it's quite amazing to be me and to have the mind I have, but I'm biased and, you know, <laughs> right? We, yes, we yes. are an invasive species. So of course, you know, I mean, of course the ruler is going to say that. <laughs> uh, you said that what, what's, Within philosophy, what would you say is, is the main your main focus of, of study? Like, what's 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 one thing that you really strive to focus on? Is it is it ethics? Is it uh, metaphysics? Is it, what's I really um, I really touch on 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 all of them. I try mm -hmm. and develop uh, a theory of aesthetics, which I I think is rooted more in um, uh, a, a, not so much subconscious, but it's more of an ordered arrangement. It's how we organize and put things into, into categories. Now, a funny thing is that if I were to say, hey, you know, this is my theory of ethics and I'm gonna call it the categorical imperative. <laughs> right? Well, we know it's like, eh, that's already taken, right? So we can talk about all the trademark copyright thing in the world, but there's this kind of like blocking equity thing that happens with words, right? Um, you know, like, I don't know, let's use an extreme example here, okay? Let's use an extreme example. Let's say that our dialogue today or like cultural dialogue was moving in a position of racial purity, mm -hmm. okay? Something like that, right? Okay? okay, so this idea of racial purity is so presuppositionally contaminated with, I mean, just throw up some you know, some images, right? I mean, Hitler, fascism, um, 
you, you know, like racism and like, you know what I'm saying? So uh, KKK, all these kinds of like really like, mm -hmm. you know, scary manifestations of our, our society, hardly the best of what we've produced, right? No, no. And uh, so if you, if, if you do that and you're coming up with something, you, it's sometimes hard to like, how do you emphasize beauty and categories are really um, kind of like that fundamental substrate of where aesthetics come from? Like, where does beauty come from, right? As as one of them. And here I would kind of go into more of an Aristotle way of thinking and breaking them down into a couple different categories. And there would be a biological imperative. You're biologically driven and attracted to some particular person, right? Unfortunately, we use the identity of Chris Wright as your entire lineage through time, the entire time that you have this uh, binomial consciousness of mediated by circadian rhythms, right? Like you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep. So this is what it looks like. It's going on and off, on and off, on and off, you know, every day of your life for your entire lifetime, right? And then we basically say that that signal is you, right? I mean, if you look at it just from that sort of information mm -hmm. flow, and yet the entire, um, I don't know if it's like, if this statement is correct, but your, enti your entire um, DNA structure gets rewritten every seven years, like what lineage actually goes through, what's remembered, how do cells die? I mean, or cells die and then regenerate or are you full, you know, your full body gets kind of regenerated. I think it's in seven years or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like it's like, uh, well, I'm Chris version one, Chris version two or Chris version three. And yet, there is actually market differences, right? Because what Chris is as a toddler is different than what Chris is as a teenager, which is different than what Chris is going to be as a grandpa. Mm. Right. And mm. so these are very fast ways to introduce normative ethics. Cause it's like, we can say, Oh, what's the ideal grandpa. And we can, as a society all agree that Chris is going to be kind of, I want to be kind of like this. Well, why? Well, my grandpa did that. Right. And if mm. we're, a spiteful society and if we're an ungrateful society was like, i don't want to be like my grandpa. well of course if he hit you and abused you you don't want to be like him but you know what are the good things about him or do we always look at the bad sides of people you know you know and i think that's the antidote to today's call out culture it's like okay i understand you want to rip that uh you know statue down because he was uh part of imperialist England at the time of conquest and he held slaves. Okay. I get that. I, I get that. But before you rip it down, can you at least tell me what good he brought about the world? And what's it's more like, It's kind of like, uh, have you heard of a Chesterton fence before? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, you, you're coming along and you see the, the fence at the road you're, and you want to take it down because it's in your way. But uh, you did, you, sh you you basically need to assume that there is some other purpose there uh, that you're you're unaware of before you take it down. So you go and you investigate and find out what the, what is the, its purpose, and then afterwards, um, if there isn't if there isn't actually a reason, then you could take it down. But otherwise, you'll probably find that there's so probably something else. That yeah, no, that's that's exactly what it is. I really like you brought that up. Um, what I would say is that I wish um, I wish more of our dialogues happened in that way. I think that's the tr that's that's a 
I would say a truer form, but a more ideal form of dialogue is to develop ideas together, right? And so you say, okay, let's reason through this problem together and you get a bunch of people in the room and you say, okay, so here's, here's how we're going to kind of do this. We're going to, you know, we're going to think, is it a good idea to tear down this statue? Right. And we say, okay, that's, that's a very, if, you know, and, and maybe, uh, so you can imagine you're running the thing, right. And I'm, I'm the mayor. Okay. Let's just pretend I'm the mayor. Okay. And I sit there and go, okay, I'm, I'm with you guys. If we can reason through this properly and still decide that we're going to go and rip down this statue, I'll go with you and help you rip down the statue. And I go, Ooh, really? Okay. So the, you know, you know, so you're in it with us. I go, yeah, I'm in it with you. Okay. So let's, let's look at this. Y you know, he's, uh, he held slaves. He, uh, was part of imperialist, uh, England. Okay. Um, what, what, what do you know about him? And if you think from a, a standpoint of what was it that was good that contributed to society? What was it, what was it that made him a leader? For what reason are we, um, you know, we putting him there? Was there some fundamental underlying good that he represents? Right. And I'm, I'm okay to rip it down, but let's make sure that we understand what was it that was good about it. I mean, if the person making the statue is like, oh, because I want to encourage slavery, because I want to make sure that the realm of England stays on forever, sure. um, you know, and continues to um, extract resources on behalf of, you know, for basically for the mother country, right? Mm -hmm. for Mother England, for the Queen, then we say, no, I mean, that we can see, obviously, everybody knows that there's something wrong with that, right? We all know that there's something wrong with that. So what was it about their attempts and the people that actually experienced that struggle in that life that makes them not worthy of your hatred? Yeah, it's, 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 it's all about the, really the, the intention that, that matters. It's like, you see, we, when we put a statue up, we, we put it there um, to commemorate the, you know, the good that a, that a certain person has given to society. And so you, you typically, well, this, this person, you know, helped to, uh, you know, you know, you, you put up a statue of, like Abraham Lincoln. It's like, you know, he helped to free the slaves, he helped to preserve the union. Well, now or anybody, you could say that. Um, and that was, that would be the intention in putting up a statue. Whereas if the intention, if it was putting up a statue of, say, Jefferson Davis, and let's say this was a very pro-slavery person, they did that because they're pro-slavery. Look at the intention. Uh, oh, that's an evil intention. Then there is a reason to take it down. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and I, I'll give you an option between uh, take down and put up, right? And take down is a real... That's a real dramatic uh, thing. Yeah. And I, I just... I know I have a bias. I'm just totally not a Rousseauian. I'm not about revolution. Mm -hmm. I think we live in the prosperous, most prosperous time in the world that the last thing we need is a revolution. We're so, we have, we have so much to be grateful for in our society, right? And I think that is forgotten very, very quickly. Okay. Right. I mean, another we'll, platonic we'll thing that- easily go, that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So I think that you you have to kind of be really, um, well, let me give you one one scenario that is different than the 
take it down or my idol is better than your idol. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd say you want to take it down and then do you want to put another one up? And they say, yeah, we want to put up uh, chief so-and-so. Okay. Because he, he was, um, you know, he was really important for this land. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I say, well, let me offer one other thing. Instead of, instead of taking that one down, let's have both of them. Let's have both of them. Let's put another one right beside him, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, I'll be kind of a, a douchebag here. And I'll say, actually, we could take him with a shirt off flexing and being like, oh, I'm bigger than you, you know, sort of thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm trying to put a little bit of humor into that to say, you see how ridiculous it is. Right. Mm-hmm. So that future generations can go, oh, yeah, there was this really goofy Right. Like, I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong or take it down is wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm just too, um, maybe the optimal path is just to rip the shit down, put new stuff up. And this is progress, you know, like just demolish everything, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and even if it's only half true, let's just, just say it is and just everybody agree and let's get all the old farts out of there. Right. Mm-hmm. And you realize that I've just very, succinctly define what post-modernity is in terms of a cultural critique. It's kind of like this gnawing sort of similar kind of, let's just take it down. Do it. You know, it's like, reminds me of like Lord of the Flies. Like you, you're just going to fall into like weirdness because there is information and wisdom out there and it does transfer across societies. Yep. And it's been a great safety net. Another platonic, what do you mean? Is there a net there? I fall off the cliff. Is he going to catch me? No, you dummy. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I'm using a metaphor. So it's purposeful. What is metaphor? It's for <clears throat> being able to convey that information and concepts where you say, you know, like a point <laughs> and a line is like this stick. Right? They go, oh, yeah, vertical. Oh, but you can turn it this way. Yep. And you can turn it, you know, <laughs> it's like what it's like. It's like that, right? Mathematically, yeah. we have a representation of what a point is. And we also have representation of what a line is, right? And so, you know, what are those ideal forms? How do they translate into the world? And how does the world of trigonometry relate onto the reality of, I guess, what the world is trying to tell us? Right. So um, that's more of an Einsteinian sort of Godel thing. It's like the world is intelligible. That means it is it does rational things. Not that it's a thinking thing, but it's that's why if we're following reason, we're 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 uncovering that sort of thing. Right. This is what reason is kind of negotiating reality in that particular way. Right. And if you use abstract thinking. Um, as a way to to reveal that or remember those things, right? Then that's platonic thinking for you. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned that one thing that you study is is beauty and aesthetics. Uh, what is beauty? <laughs> what would you? Would you yeah. Well. Here's the thing. I think this is my weakest one. And I guess maybe I love talking about my weakest one because in the true form of a dialectic, we can hopefully move it a little bit closer. But I found that just like free will, uh, people would talk back and forth about what it meant. And there was always this like, uh, there's a really hard way to kind of figure out where those boundary conditions are, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I think just as a matter of like, ah, I figured it out. I'm just trying to like reason through one to say, well, what if it's just at a fundamental level, our ability to separate things? That's that's fundamentally what it is, right? Like you can't call it all of a sudden now that's beauty because, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways, right? And you say, okay. So then you could say there's beauty that's worthless, right? Because there's we sort things all the time, right? But if I'm the kind of person that is is meticulous about my surroundings and I have I, I set my uh, my dinner table very interestingly every night, right? There's the placemat. It's like three quarters of an inch away from the edge of the table. Each one of them are symmetrically laid out. Your cup is in a very specific. 45 degree from like the, you know, the corner of your plate and everything is kind of lined up and the, the arc of the knife is all the, you say, this is just being anal, you know, there's no big, but you have to admit at some level, what are you using in order to create this? Right. And so I thought rather than the perception of what beauty is, why not try and understand that it's, it's all derived from humans, right? I mean, at least we're talking about human beauty here, right? So what is it that we're doing when we, when when we attempt to create beauty right and uh I, and then i said well let's let's make the assumption that it's ordered um decreasing the entropy you could describe it yeah. yeah exactly like participating in that right and i don't want to even get into a free will sort of thing i'm just saying you find yourself participating in it which actually emanates and projects in a consciousness sort of thing lightly on the word projection because i'm not saying anything like that theater mind thing that Dennett attacked. It's like, I get it, man. There is no theater. There's no homunculi, all this kind of stuff. But I'm like, I'm using metaphor because I'm I, I'm trying to communicate it in a way that I think you'll understand. And if you say, well, I don't have an imagination. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, we have nothing to talk about, right? Like, unless you're incorporating how the 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 neurons basically get from you know one side of the synaptic field to the other side of the synaptic synaptic field right unless you color that for me in in the best form of storytelling right unless you do that I'm gonna say um, you're you're giving up something right because I'm saying there's an ideal way to color that and you're saying there is no color there is no blue Right. When I say this, we go back to color theory. It's like, well, what does blue feel like to you? Well, it feels different than red does, <laughs> you know, and when it's our sky, I can describe what a blue sky, you know, what it, what it, uh, what the color blue is that experience of what it is to see color blue, but you can't do that from a computer. So I'm saying it has to be in, in your, in your, in your method, right? It has to be somewhere has to be in your method, Mr. Dennett. And it, it feels to me like uh, Dennett just explains it away. And I'm like, well, ne negating a an imagined experience is not, um, doesn't mean that it didn't happen for somebody. You know, you know, is it, uh, it's up, it's up to every individual to reconcile that using reason, just figure out what's applicable to, you know, the topic that they're trying to solve. 
and we have this amazing superpower computer that until a problem like the traveling salesman gets sold and that are solved and i don't know if you know but it's like a million dollar prize right i'm thinking about that earlier and i uh I, th I think the answer lies in the Hamilton equation. Um, I think it's the, it's, it's the Hamilton cycle. So it's like the it goes on a pathway. Every single pathway goes around the network. It only goes on one segment once. So by definition, it's like I'm not saying it's the most efficient way, but it it's kind of it's the result that they're looking for. You know, yeah. is the so and I was having a fun sort of mimicry writing session today about uh putting job applications in hamilton right in canada in hamilton and saying we're looking for participants in this uh cycling salesman experiment right <laughs> i thought that'd be very, very funny to, to do that right because it's like yeah I suppose, I suppose one way to think of of beauty is it's is it's you know all objects all creatures you know have a certain nature that they're ordered towards and so yeah. you could say that, that that beautiful thing is in some way better fulfilling that that nature. Uh, uh, so like a, you know, if you look at a, a beautiful painting, um, more accurately, you know, represents its you know whatever it's depicting. Uh, or one thing I've been thinking about a lot, a lot as well is uh, architectural beauty is uh, like a, a beautiful building. So, but then different things can be beautiful in different ways. So like, if you look at like some houses, uh, like uh, there's some, if I look out and there's some beautiful Georgian houses out there and they're beautiful in their context. But if you took one of those buildings and put them like the, in the middle of like a forest, uh, they would no longer be as beautiful because they're not in the right context. They're not, they're not part of that grander scheme. So it, it occurred to me that one thing that makes a, a building a building beautiful is that especially like a house or you know something within the middle of the city is that it tends to kind of blend in with its surroundings and then in that sense it makes the the whole system more beautiful whereas say so but there are other types of buildings that typically are supposed to stand out so like i say a palace or a church uh, and so those ones are meant to be something that rises above everything else and so you have, you know, there's like this ordered hierarchy of things that blend in, things that stand out, you have a, like a balance between them. So what yeah, one thing really beautiful you've in this. Got, I, 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 take I have to out. jump in because I'm so yeah. excited about what you're saying. This is so beautiful, <laughs> the way you've explained it. Um, and, I, and I think that's really exciting to hear from you. Because I think you're absolutely right. I think what you're describing is, you know, we can say it's a hierarchy, but the, the value of ascending that hierarchy is is really what you say that that that, that the commodity is, right? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what what is it that you're, what is it that you're gaining by moving up that hierarchy mm -hmm. of ideas, right? And uh, most of that is within yourself, right? You're constantly testing and moving and assessing things and moving up in your own internal hierarchy, which maybe starts to fill out some sort of self-worth sort of thing. But invariably what your whole point was is that it's um, very network-based and very bigger than you, right? And you can imagine, say, say you actually could apply uh, like a percentage weighting to that. You could say that there's... Um, 
yeah, I mean, you could even get that information from, uh, you know, people in the experience, like how important is your surroundings to your choice to be here to do whatever, right? How, how important has it been in your success or whatever else, right? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're, you're right. You know, it's, it's like the, the, the context and the setting could be like 50% of the decision. Mm -hmm. You know, and you say, well, how would you prove that? Well, and I, that's, I like thinking about those kinds of things all the time. You'd say, well, do something where organically people were deciding this sort of thing, right? That's your baseline test subject. And you, you figure out, well, there's a community over here that has this characteristic and one over here and one over here and one over here and one over here. And, you know, is that something that we can measure? And is that something that we can look at, you know, in more detail with any sort of like, things that we could derive from that. Like that's that's kind of a cool thing. The problem with those kinds of things is that I invariably get to a wall where I'm thinking there's, it's like anything subjective is just never in a vacuum, right? So it's like you have to, you have to approach those experiments just methodologically different, you know? Um, and I found that maybe like uh, the COVID situation is maybe a perfect example of that. I mean, people, went from science is great to like um you know they're taking away my freedoms you know and and uh you know that's just um that's sad you know <laughs> yeah and i think you know whatever people decide however we decide to define science i think that we need to really take into consideration that uh there's uh there's there's it serves people and that people um have a have varying degrees of understanding the world you know and if it's like save one person at a time well i'm telling you you gotta you gotta be kind of knowledgeable and being an effective communicator with your with your with your patients right and that means that a a national level and an emergency level and uh, everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so what would I do if I was running CDC? I'd say, okay, well, actually, we need to start making our protocols more obvious, apparent, audible. This is how we do things as a science, a scientist. This is how we're, this is what we're looking for. Here's an explanation. Do a continuous series of like 10 YouTube channels so people can see and understand it probably won't be watched very much but that's a great starting point make it publicly you know out there i'm accountable to the public because here's my thought process right here's how we're coming up if this happens this is called a stage three mutating blah 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 here's what rolls out in action for our our team and here's what our mandate is to tell the health professionals across all of the world this is what we're preparing for, just to let you know. You say, well, I don't think it's right that we shut the businesses down. You're like, great, okay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yep. So it's very important to get those conversations started just so you can, you know, yeah. everyone can, you know, just be more open about things, you know, more truthful. And you can go farther like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and how to set it up, I, I think, you know, we're, we have all the ability to transform our 
and tools into the world that we want to do it and just through imagining them different and that's kind of platonic maybe a little hopeful and wishy you know because you know i'm not you know i don't really like nietzsche all that much but it's like you know you look at it and go all of those people like me got slaughtered <laughs> by all the nietzsche people that decided nah fuck that i'm just gonna you know listen to my inner conquering self right you know <laughs> So anyways, I'm just saying that um, in the in the people that have similar feelings to me, I would say like a liberal tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And I hang out with a lot of liberal uh, academic types, right? And, sure. and I think, think your ideas are not that good. And, uh, <laughs> and you don't handle criticism all that well. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe there should be some more onus on explaining it to the public. Cause if you can't explain it to the public, you know, I mean, does it exist? You know, really? I mean, you can't just say I've done all my work and now I'm done. I, I, I think things change. And that's one thing that you're the best to tell your story, right? If you're talking to an academic, you're the best person to explain it and be like, I don't get anywhere and people argue with me and it's a waste of my time. And I'd rather, like well, okay. Yeah, you you need to be able to explain your concept on on different levels of comprehension. So you know, you know uh, there's more at the professional level than you know, sitting down to make sure that it can. Because if if you can't understand, if you can't, if you can't re reword your own theory in yeah. different ways, do you really understand it? Well, and I think the thing is, is that you can actually get to a very quick conversation and say, well, like, how can we mutually value this, right? Okay, so if, if you're an academic, and you bring something to the governments, and I, I'm imagining governments as being in leaders in wealth creation for the citizens, right? They have the ability to put people's put money in people's bank accounts. And um, I would say that, you know, if you met with your you know, your local government representative and you said, look, I got, I got a podcast that I can line up. That's going to bring, you know, the top inf 50 influential thinkers. Here's my program idea. Here's what I want to do. Um, you know, mm. would you support me on that? And I'm saying, so I don't have to do it as like a free hobby pay unpaid sort of thing. Right. And uh, you know, I honestly think we should live in a world where that sort of thing uh, is encouraged. This is the equivalent of, you know, the Greeks hanging out in the Agora talking about, you know, things and ideal things and having, you know, meetings and stuff like that, symposiums, even, you know, drinking parties and just mm -hmm. that cultural of that culture of inner activity and engagement. And this is the only real form of engagement that is ideal because you know, responding on social media, you know, you don't get the person's full response. You know, we can't have somebody It's like, you know, what I kind of mean is this, or do you think I could make my argument better if I had this sort of thing? Or I kind of see where you're coming from, you know, like I understand that, but we kind of, you know, you reason through it together and say, well, why is my thinking different than that person's thinking? You're like, well, okay, you know, huh, interesting. Why is it that you think that? Like, you know, like you can kind of, yeah. You can kind of reason together. And I think reasoning together is one thing that could actually make Plato's dialogues better. And that's what I wrote. I wrote, I wrote a few of those. 
about trying to make the dialogue better, you do get a bit of a, like, they're just wonderful. I've reread the dialogues like 15 times, you know, multiple translations. And uh, I have um, most of them on, on the Planksip YouTube channel as well. I think 29 of the 35 dialogues. And um, for some of them, at least with the Republic, I went through and I put the Stephanus numbers you know, mm -hmm. the stuff is, I put those as timestamps throughout the whole um, dialogue, right? So what's cool is that you could write an article and you could say, well, this was such and such, you know, 58D in Euthydemus or something like that, right? And then you can put the link and it goes right to there on the video, right? So, oh, but dude, I tell you, it was just crazy to, to do all that. Like it's hours and hours of work to go, you imagine going through the, line by line and here's the the stephanus number it goes right here you know it's, it's long it's a lot of work so i'd like to have all of them done but i just don't how how can one live a virtuous life uh what is the what is the key to you know having a, a more ethical life well, you gotta work at it it's uh culture is cultivating you know, you got to lay seeds for tomorrow, um, you know, to benefit you and the people around you. And uh, then you have to nurture those and um, you have to do it in an ideal way where you um, become a better man. Okay. And uh, you know, yeah, you know exactly how to do that. If you look at yourself, you can go, yeah, I know how I can improve myself. Yeah. Maybe it's that fear of public speaking um maybe it's being man enough to say i'm never going to be a public speaker and defending it and owning it um maybe it's just doing everything in your in your life uh and trying to stay out of the limelight you know whatever it is mm -hmm. Uh, so you're interested in the in the cardinal virtues as well. Uh, oh, absolutely, listen. yeah. I just love the cardinal virtues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind uh, uh, discussing those? What uh, what the meaning of those? And how come? We okay. Yeah. So I mean, first you all, first you have something called prudence, which is really just. Um, Well, let me try and let me try and maybe stay start with wisdom. Okay, so wisdom is something that you can kind of work at and cultivate, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can also have prudence, and you can be kind of careful, right? And you know, lots of things can come into that sort of ideal, like the golden mean, nothing in excess, which isn't entirely under that section of cultivating, but definitely always playing in the background right sort of thing like prudence was the king of the virtues because it, it brings the rest of them in yeah 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 so you can actually start to form a, a kind of like a um put them in sort of shapes like prudence is overarching and then you know where does justice come in um you know that's that's really interesting to sort of imagine that and it, which is another one by the way is justice um and so, you know, you can look at these virtues and you can say, how do I cultivate them? How do I um, 
how, how do I focus on those qualities and then become naturally just a better person, right? And um, I think that's you know still very powerful. And I think I, I think there's an apologetic in there too because I think there's a strong divide between atheists and theists. And I think that, um, you know, that can be mediated by um, understood better. I don't even actually know if it would be a coming together, right? I mean, what's the what's the the minimal viable product that you want to see come out of an exchange between a secular community and a theist community, right? You're going to say, well, mm -hmm. can we at least agree on the wisdom that we can derive from that story? Mm -hmm. Can we at least yeah. agree on that? Right? Can we agree that this is significant because the wisdom that we derive for is this? Can we agree on that? You know, yeah. <laughs> and just say it over and over again and say, okay, so now we agree that that, you know, what we do about it or how we apply that wisdom. Well, that's that's up for discussion. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, but um, I think that's a way of working some of those in. And, uh, you know, it's interesting going back to your earlier you know, comment like, well, it does mean you can, you say, well, we live in a society where it's like, sure, if you want to bring the outlier um, religion into the we're open. So what would the, the faith of Islam say in a situation where you're dealing with X, Y, and Z? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Are they kind of saying the same thing or what are they saying here? Like, what, how do you interpret that? Well, I interpret it like this. Oh, okay. So we're not too different in terms of the two camps, right? We're kind of very similar. Okay. You know, what other wisdom and insight can you bring based off of your religious teachings? Like, well, I could say this, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it happens enough. Um, and I think we're holding on to remnants of trying to uh, Newtonianize human behavior, behavior, right? Where, I mean, we can't dethrone it. The reductionistic. Yeah, exactly. You, you, we, but we can't. We have we've we conceive and use of, uh, you know, what we sought after in the in the Enlightenment. We have become the Enlightenment culture, right? So so now you say, okay, well, what did we, what did we give up? You know, what was it about what we gave up that maybe was still pretty useful and and we didn't quite realize the fallout consequences for that right um and again whether you can recover it or not it, it's not the question but it's interesting to ask the question right like you know we're we're moving fast through culture so how do we how do we adapt to it in a way that's um that's healthy is it anyway so let me give you something more concrete so if you if you talk about um the conservatives will talk about like a new world order sort of thing. This is like left conspiracy almost, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the the left would call it a conspiracy, but the right would be like, come on, I, I don't know what it is, but it just seems to me like some of this is sort of going on, right? And so that's almost more dangerous than the evil dictator coming in because you don't know that that's maybe um, – something that your your populace is trying to subtly warn you about right they don't entirely know why it's not right but they know that immediately agreeing to you know something on that scale is just 
inherently bad. Or the public could be completely wrong. And that's kind of the point is to go, well, we understand that there's a range of reaction here. What's the, you know, what do we anticipate the reaction going to be, right? And why? And so I think this type of thing really needs to come into consideration. Uh, take climate change, for example. Like, you know, um, I was on LinkedIn the other day looking at, at someone's feed who is, we would call them a climate denier or like advocate for the fossil fuel industry. And the amount of responses, responses and engagement and just read the comments. They're not stupid comments. They're like, yeah, they haven't properly thought it through from a rollout logistical standpoint. It's like you're warning that, yeah, the world's going to come to an end basically, but you're not telling us how to go A, B, C, D, E, F. Because the scientist is going, well, we're way down at W, X, Y, and Z. You know, they're like, what do you want me to do? Right. Tell me, what is the next thing you want me to do? And uh, the political part of it is, is that they're just like, we got to get the majority of people in every democratic and every world around the country to just jump on board with this. And as soon as you take anything out of their lifestyle, they're going to be, they're going to blame the party for who, who does that. And so the conservatives are going to always have, that to fall back on perpetually every election from now until the end of any kind of degrowth reality. You know, so I think it's like back to the drawing board for the left. Yeah. yeah I think that a lot of the problem with, with these miscommunications is, you know, we're just, you know, both sides are just, just they're playing two different language games really. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I use uh, Wittgenstein's term there, but uh, which is, I think, is very applicable, um, but it's, you know, just two completely different worldviews coming from two different, completely different perspectives, and no one's willing to meet in that in that common ground. You're you're just talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a weird thing, right? Talking past people, not miscommunication. We're like, wait a minute, are we really understanding? Right. And I, I think that takes practice, but I think there's also uh, people will, will respond to that. That's a, a authentic communication. And I think that, you know, it just needs to be a lot more of that. I know that's how I do things in my media, outlet, for example. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I publish books for people and uh, I say to them, I was going over a script today and I just basically said, you know, we've improved our process. We don't approach publishing like, um, uh, a publisher, we approach it like um, a project manager. How am I going to go through this, right? This isn't my revenue source. This is how can I get an author's work published, work with them and have it mutually benefit us, right? So I got to pick the subject matters that matter the most and I got to pick the most enthusiastic people that are willing to participate. You know, that's the business model. You know, we still offer advances for people to write and publish with us. Why? Because we'll say, oh, we'll put our money where our mouth is. You want to write a book? Here's 10 grand. Yep. Because who does that anymore? They don't. Even the big ones aren't really paying. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a famous author, of course, right? But, I mean, most of them know. 
we'll say, I thought the easiest campaign is to say, well, we'll, uh, we'll pay you a $10,000 signing bonus because the only thing you have to agree to is that we make the first $20,000 of your sales. They go, Ooh, $20,000 of my first sales. I go, yeah, because it's going to cost a lot of money to make content and promote content and get that machine going. So we're saying at least pay us for what we spent. Yep. And they go, oh, that's right. You have to, you know, it costs you to do this. Yeah. So we're going to do that for you and you're going to pay us first. I mean, in anything, just say it's an interest-free loan with free labor. Mm. You know, like. <laughs> so anyways, that's how we approach the business model is like, you know, you don't have to turn a profit, but you just have to pay the bills. How would uh, how would you how would you use uh, uh, we'll just say the practical uses of philosophy like what can we use it for in our daily lives in our careers? Uh, I just think it makes us better problem solvers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it makes us better. Pro- that's only half. Better problem solvers, and um, I think being an intellect um, introspective thinker is. Um, is just absolutely essential to becoming a better person. Mm-hmm. How, you need to know how to improve on yourself and how do you improve? You use that introspective thought, right? You think, okay, how do you apply it against and through the lens that is you and you say, well, okay, I learned from that. I can improve on that. I know intuitively this is wrong. I shouldn't, you know, kick that kitten in the head, you know? I mean, <laughs> people do that. I'm just, it's, it was actually the alliteration. It was the kick the kitten, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's deterministically got me, but it's very cruel. So don't anybody kick any kittens. <laughs> I, I, I quite I quite enjoy uh, Wittgenstein's uh, idea for what philosophy should be. And it's, it, it's, it's a tool used to solve problems in language. He said, there are no true problems, philosophical problems. There are only problems in language. And so which you need to use logic, philosophy to sort through those and get through what is the, what is the main point behind any statement you make. Would you agree with that? Or? I do, but it la- like the thing about Wittgenstein, he, has, he had this um, cult-like following. He even had like centurions that would go out to meetings and say, I'm here on behalf of Wittgenstein. And mm-hmm. eventually people never even knew if he was actually real. <laughs> like, like it became this like really sort of like culty, Oxford culty, like super high, amazing thinker or something like that. Undoubtedly mm-hmm. genius, right? I get that. Yeah. But I think ultimately, if you're going to really think about him objectively, you can say, don't intuitively you think that if if um, if you're studying the the limits of language, right, and then you're defining them with logic because he's an analytical philosopher right this is yes. essentially what he mm. so you're 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 looking at it purely from an analytical standpoint and you say if in 95 percent of the first hour of our conversation was all about platonic thinking having some sort of effect on the way and the outcome in this non-vacuous non-vacuum based experiment right okay so there's some translation error between the mathematics and the logic into how we can um, anticipate and predict how humans are going to behave, right? 
And so from that sort of standpoint, he, he becomes um, almost just like an incomplete thought. It's like, yes, there was value with Wittgenstein, but there's a lot of times I don't need to take that out of the toolbox because the value for me is like an antique. And I would take it so far as to say an antique because like I had mentioned earlier, I said in everything um, Descartes forward started to, if you imagine a big neural net for a, a brain, right? This is how we're forming new thoughts, right? And so boom, up pops Descartes, up cops can't a little bit later up you know a schopenhauer right his disciple right so they're very offshoot very working to get you know this kind of thing right uh then you have nietzsche that comes out of schopenhauer and you have like this so it's this dendritic sort of thing right okay so it's going <laughs> and it's just imagining it's not there's no big mind like you know like an electric storm it's just that's not the thing sometimes you got to be explicit right Someone's like, did you hear this crazy philosopher he's talking about this neural network, you know, this electricity coming down and stuff. Look, just saying that's kind of how I'm imagining it. Okay. So then you have this sort of line of electricity coming down and you say it kind of resembles like the neural net on a thing. And I go, that was myelinated. It's myelinating by our universities. We've got this ideal of teaching and how do you reinforce it and teach it and imprint it and this type of thing. Well, we can do that in and through our structures of our learning structures. So that I'm saying, you actually need to unlearn that and return back to ancient Greece and kind of kind of grow out of those um, four car cardinal virtues again. I think you need to reimagine things through the classics. And that, by the way, is the purpose of the classics. It's the purpose of it. It's why you can't escape Plato and Aristotle. And in, in one of my books because I write, what's yeah. that? It's a good starting point to be grounded in. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And um, it's, yeah. So derive the wisdom from there, understand what came before, what affected it, what grew out of it, because those traditions have formed us. They've, they've formed our ideals, democracy of character, of ethics, of knowledge itself. And I think we owe ourselves a service to make sure we can understand that and be continued to be inspired by, by that. And, you know, I just, uh, I think we have a preoccupation with trying to discover a small bit of certainty in a vast ocean of, I don't know, what is the ocean full of? It's like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. See, I can't, I can't keep up. I don't, I don't know what to fill in there. But we could say, well, like from a story, what, what could the ocean of, of it be? Like the, you know, you realize some might be corny, some might be, you know. But what sounds good? What's, what would we put there? What would we arrange in that spot? I don't know. Ocean of. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, there we've used right. Okay, so you use mystery, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so you. You've used something that is an abstract concept too, right? Maybe you say it was the um, ocean of stardust. Oh, that's interesting because it does it kind of bring in the people like you know, the DeGrasse Tyson ones, where we could weave a narrative of it going, you know, you know, not like one step on either side, right? Trying mm -hmm. to use like conciliant language, 
right? And now I'm going to go to the point and I'll bring in somebody like um, Shelley, who says the poets are the legislators of society, right? Mm -hmm. And so me using this poetic sort of like, I'm, I'm being transparent with how I'm like, not problem solving, but like, applying imagery to it and I can explain it with my words and then you can go, okay. And we're in this platonic space. Right. Yes. And you can say, well, okay, so what would be the, the best thing there? And we can compare and contrast this, uh, you know, what you suggest and what I suggest and we can say, all right, we're at a deadlock or what makes sense here. Why would it be here? Right. So mm -hmm. what comes to mind when you think of it, that's another important one too, which is, trying to just go with your first instinct for what reason i don't know it's the most expeditious mm -hmm, mm -hmm. why not would, would you mind touching again on the idea of uh, the the, po the poets as the leaders of society because i find that concept uh yeah they're they're like spit spinning a web that you know that goes throughout um out the culture that kind of gives a sense of structure to it uh both descriptive and prescriptive, I suppose, that kind of describes how, how it is and how it should be. Yeah, uh, descriptive and prescriptive. Yeah, that's interesting how, how it is and how it should be. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can make the claim that you, you just have something that is purely descriptive, and this just might come down to, you know, writing style or rhetoric, which is important. We have a negative connotation around it, but, you know, so we take information in in different ways, right? So sometimes, you know, what 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 do you scroll on? Uh, and here I'm saying in an environment of somebody to get small tidbits of information very quickly. And you know, I can't help but think of channels like a social media or something like that. I think like how simple is it that it can be conveyed? And I, I could I could imagine something where you had a a campaign that was going out, and it was you know just bullet points. Right. In one situation and then in another situation to match what you're talking about, you'd have, you know, a bunch of imagined futures. You know, what's the best way to do that? Well, maybe something that's horrific, people walking around a wasteland or something like that. And, you know, that may catch more attention than trying to imagine what beauty looks like. Right. So there the function of that ordered arrangement is perverse in itself in order to extract and move to a greater good. And so you understand how this is all functioning really easily like we're kind of moving towards some sort of greater good right in 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 our immediate vicinity and in something that's for me personally or me and my family and kin or for the world at large right mm -hmm. so we're constantly trying to figure out how to you know bridge all of those you, you know overlapping hierarchies right and our relation into in in those kind of moves us up, you know, kind of like that spider web, I think you're referring to, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like the spider web thing, because, you know, a little bit of movement over here can really affect something yes. way over on the other side, you know, and uh, a butterfly effect, in a way. Yeah, it's instead of throat time, it's throat society. And that's an intricate web, then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is amazing the way that one small thing in you know one side of the world can have major implications on the on the other side of it. Yeah, yeah, and I, we we're getting more and more like that, right? Like, what was it? Somebody was doing a comparison of COVID of how fast that spread versus the 
you know, the 1918 flu. Mm -hmm. And like the CDC has this information. It's very interesting. Like it just spread so fast because we're such an interconnected world. Right. And that's just a reality. We're all over. Everybody's all, we don't, we don't have these isolated pockets of, and you know, maybe from managing a health crisis, you just deal with those differently. Right. Like if it took six months to get over to America, then you'd be like, all right, well, you know, it's good to know, you know, and you, you manage your responses accordingly. So we just live in an interconnected world, right? Like, you know, bio, I don't know if, uh, like bio weapons, that's different. That can be just localized. Um, yeah, that could even, you know, mm -hmm. could even bring up the N word with, with, uh, with Russia. Right. And think, Oh, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, how big is it? What's the fallout? What mm -hmm. will I be breathing like radioactive stuff? The big one. Um, or of course with the, with the technologies and, and AI, of course, is, accelerating this greatly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what would you say is yeah. the future of ai in society what what would you say are going to be the the main impact chris i'm really glad you've asked that i've written a book uh soon to be published called will freeman and uh the fundamental starting point for this book it's a literary fiction it was a challenge for me to write fiction i normally write nonfiction titles Mm -hmm. Okay. As a part of how I enjoy researching and I enjoy writing and creating. Right. So the idea of Will Freeman is that I think it was born out of the realization that we are, are framing things incorrectly. Um, AI doesn't have to have a um, Terminator like take over the world feeling to it where it feels like we're a society that's very scared of um, losing our reign, a little paranoid, if, if, you, if you will, right? Like the chances of this turning on and, and, and ending up like Skynet is just interesting at the least, right? And I think maybe an overreaction. I'm not saying don't look at it, but it seems like to be, it seems like where we're focused, right? And so anyways, the, the idea of Will Freeman is, is very simple. Our, our society has a clear extinction timeline. Okay. So um, mm -hmm. I think I wrote in the book, it was um, 2070. So you'd imagine like it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Everybody understands that there will not be another human past the year 2070. And I don't mean climate change. We think it's real. I think, and I, look, I mean, there are people in the world that think that climate change is not real and that the scientists have all been kind of misled or the climate scientists have all been kind of like indoctrinated into this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a way for, um, uh, a fascist minority to take over the world and, um, take away freedoms. Right. That, that's kind of, kind of what some people think you say, okay, well, maybe there are some fundamental like tendencies in there that we need to be kind of like, we're like, keep an eye on. Right. But for the most part, I think we can give some people the benefit of the doubt, I think, and allow some of these things to happen. Right. I think we can be explorative with our, our um, structures and not be first to demonize and criticize and, you know, th throw things out. 
I think we have to be efficient and prudent as we move forward. And, uh, and that that needs to reform what the, the you know, the, 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 the conservative philosophy is, right? It, it has to be rooted in that. It has to be rooted in sensibility and, uh, you know, long-term ethic of, of, you know, being responsible. It ha- I mean, it has to. It has to balance that short and long-term reality. And, uh, and if it doesn't, uh, it appears it's just not going to come from the left. We're kind of, you know, hooped. That's the climate change thing anyways. But the uh, AI story has more to do with um, we have an acceptance that, that humanity is coming to an end in 2070. And so imagine that's the case. You just agreed, you knew, just that's the way it is. Okay, big flashbang, we're all gone. But we do have an ability to, as our last effort to kind of leave some sort of remnant is um, put our best foot forward on AI. That's what we're like singularly focused on right now is to say like, instead of like, oh, it might take us over, um, say, oh shit, let's try and put our absolute, you know, like all the best minds in the world on this project. Cause it's like, what else are you going to do? You know, you've got like, there's nothing, this is nothing else matters. There's no escape from this. It's like our son's going supernova or something like that. Right. You know? So what, I mean, I know that even information, we can't put it in a capsule and kind of hit the, you know, like the the flashpoint or something like that. But I'm just like, somehow, you know, none of that matters. I'm saying like, this is the reality. This is going to happen. Right. So there's a comet coming towards the earth or. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. That's a better one because then the whole universe doesn't, but you know, and we, we have some sort of like contained vessel or something that could contain humanity's consciousness. Okay. There we go. Right. Okay. There you go. So what does it look like? And I'm saying, well, try and put your best foot forward. This is philosophy in action. How would you build this? Right. And so anyways, the book goes through the whole history of, um, as, as memory, right? You're recalling is just like a human, except for instead of being able to recall bits and pieces gestalted across your lifetime, it actually is, um, it, it, it spans multiple generations. So it, by definition, it pulls in more, um, and it changes, that changes it a bit because the transition, the translation actually adds something in of itself because it invokes the emotion of something. It's just not a beta, beta, it's just not a recorder of this, right? So sequentially, the idea was that as it kind of got revealed, it got more and more abstract, right? And so by second and third generation, you really couldn't entirely tell. But the idea was that the androids, basically neural net can actually look at the reality in real time and go, okay, that was the reality and not throw away that other sort of um, imagined layer. And it's like trying to use the imagination layer to, to move um, in, in a direction that is, um, I guess, just better, right? And so that's the extent of describing that kind of way the mind works that was it's put not, into like the- a, Every bit of knowledge and piece of human consciousness con- condensed to one point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like: Are you aware of the story of Diolef? Uh, uh, it's a Borges short story, uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wrote the story about 
about every point of the universe condensed to one point called the Aleph. Uh, And so you're able to look at it and see all of the universe in one small area. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's it's beautifully anti, um, pl- platonic in a way. Like it's not big and uh, it's all connected, and it's it changes this whole up looking at things to down, like you know. And it's just such a beautiful, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful concept. I think. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. You know, so the question is, Chris, is like, what do you do with that? Like, so another thing is like nothing. You just absorb it, right? You just say. Okay, could you be inspired by something like that? Like, how could you create something with this, you know, duality of like concepts there, right? I mean, how far philosophically can you take that? Is does it does any do any ideas come to mind? You know, when you kind of think what, about yeah, it. Yeah, right? what what comes to mind is there? Can you find some sort of meaning in it? Or do, do you immediately fall into nihilism? What's the what happened? Well, that's interesting that you kind of take that because I'm an. It feels like I'm an internal possibility thing. So, like, imagine you're trying to create a meme in mm-hmm. a in a social media setting, right? And you're like, well, okay. So, here are these two situations. Do we do we do we initiate a narrative that talks about falling into nihilism, right? Where it's like, so that's a, basically what you're saying. It's like a, a big slippery slope for society, right? And I'm, to me, it's a bit of a yawner in terms of not necessarily what will happen, but what is an ideal thing that could happen, right? Like, let's start there as a baseline, right? And say, well, um, you know, we've got these, you know, kind of two polarizing sort of things. How do we synthesize the two and pull the best of the two together, right? And make it better. So one's a warning, right? It's kind of like slow down, it's a speed bump. The other one is more like, how do we move into this? Like what, you know, what does that information tell us? How can we synthesize it? Can we make the world a better place with that knowledge? Like, that's where I'm hoping the majority of young minds go is a problem solving. What do we do with this information? How do we synthesize? How do we, how do we make use of this? How do we apply this? Right. That's, yeah. that's what I'm that, hoping. That, that, that practical side of, of the philosophy is, is very important to get into. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. You start out with the theory, and then you, you go into the practical side of it. Yeah, I mean, somebody like David Hume, it was more of a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really was good because he kind of bucked the trend, right? He stopped this, like, excessive reliance on... Uh, this is a, one of the problems with um, the, the the method that I'm describing, is that as it starts to mature, like a plant, it needs to kind of be pruned. And it has a hard time pruning itself, right? It's, it's like, imagine this is a human body. It's like, okay, you know, you, you can't really hurt yourself all that much. I mean, you, you know, it's like hard to inflict pain on yourself, right? So, um, you know, I think you have to, um, you know, kind of has to come, because we're not naturally masochistic. So I think it has to come from, you know, a, um, a gentle amount of conflict in your life and through problem solving and reasoning and in this type of thing, I think it has to, this, this describes a, um, an ideal way that a society should work together. And so we got these two bits of information and be like, okay, you know, what do we do? Should we make a, an, an essay competition and, and 
you know, incite all of the, the youth, you know, 25 and under to write a, a paper? Would we give them money? You know, I mean, sure, I do that. I blanks it. So, you know, you still got to get, you know, that out to enough people and a lot of people to come in. Like, I mean, what, what do you do? What do you do with that information, right? Mm. That's, that's the important thing. And um, sometimes you don't always know. Sometimes it's like, okay, that's good to know. I don't know how I'm going to use it. I'll kind of filter it away, right? Maybe I'll be able to come back and look at that, right? And uh, I think writing helps with that. I think that's going to be the new method for writing is a way to uh, order your thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, no, that's, a, uh, that, that's so important. It's, it is the, the, the importance of writing because there's there's so many people where they they have they get some they have some probably good ideas but they don't structure them enough and so yeah. they're, they're not able to put them in that proper order and so it comes nothing but what, once you write it it's you know you're able to look at it from a different point of view because it makes sense in your head but as it's coming out when you're speaking it you know it's it doesn't have the order it doesn't make that same amount of sense so when you write it down you're able to look at it from more of an outside perspective and yeah speak it. you know I'm, I'm really excited to tell you about this chris so um we do this with authors we write we help write books for authors that haven't been able to we think think of us as an incubator publisher really i'm like we publish just like any other publisher but um i was talking about this with somebody today it's more like we're an incubator publisher because I've sat down with writers and we just, um, you know, talk about their ideas in a, in a four hour session. And now with the help of chat GBT, I can go back and look at that, take the transcript, go through, summarize it by bullet point, right? While it's still fresh in my memory and go, that's not really, you know, I'm reconciling against the two with somebody who's like a virtual assistant and I'm doing it really quickly, right? But you have to know what you're looking for and what to ask for, right? And so um, what I would say is that, you know, use that technology. I use it. I help, you know, use it for publishing books very quickly because, like you said, there's people like they just need a little bit of help organizing and structuring their, you know, their thoughts. I mean, like, you know, give me 10 meetings with them and 24 hours and I'll have a book for him to review of his thoughts. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's we live in a time where that is possible technology wise. Right. And, you know, we found real success in being able to offer that with people. And uh, we, you know, we then work with them on on developing their ideas on stuff like we're talking about here, like philosophy and, and uh, philosophy, economics, neuroscience, um, I, I emphasize a lot, a lot on climate change, what, what I write about. Um, but, yeah, to, uh, to, to learn how to write is to learn how to think. And that gets back to the Aristotelian idea of we're, we're, not, just, we're not just like souls trapped in bodies. Like our, our souls and our bodies, they're intertwined. We, we, we learn from the, from the outside. We, once we externalize our thoughts to the paper, you know, there's that connection there connection to front you know you're you're moving your hand in to form the words on the on the paper and you're learning them in a, in a new way you're able to yeah. look at it from a different perspective 
Yeah. 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 And I mean, you, you know, as you say that type of thing, um, you know, there's detractors. I don't know if you catch this, right. But there, there'd be um, kind of like a Daniel Dennett type that would say, well, actually, Chris, nothing like that's really going on. The, the synapse is doing this and you're doing this and that's how it is. Right. And you'd be like, okay, I get it. I, I understand all of that. So, but how we function in a society means we almost are immersed in a consciousness that is a narrative, right? You see now how the platonic thing mm -hmm. starts to make a little bit sense of sense. Mm -hmm. Like we've mm -hmm. colored ourselves in a way that we can only see ourselves. Right. And, uh, I think that any definition of consciousness has to have and accept that that is the description of the way things are. Like it is, um, I guess, like Heidegger said, I'm not really a super fan of Heidegger, but you know, we're thrown into this world, right? We're, we're thrown into it. And then it, the theater comes on basically like the things, the aspects of the world that aren't true, that they're like, colored and they're brought you know with um, extra meaning and attention um those become very um ingrained pretty quickly at a young age right yeah that's why, like a, yeah that, that's why I, I, I can't buy into that that dennett idea that uh, which i think prematurely just writes off the whole the whole thing and fails to see, you know, the, the telos of these actions, the, the end effort, where it's it it looks at, you know, all when you when you when you break down what the what these different actions are doing at different levels, uh, it tries to isolate them too much and tries to eliminate like the cause and effect between, you know, you know, A causes B causes C, but it, it tries to reduce that a little too much forgets the chain of events within that broader scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Mm -hmm. How would you define consciousness, especially in, in the context of AI? Mm. Well, building on what we were just talking about, um, I think consciousness has to, has to describe um the 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 has to have a cultural component of of what culture is and how that's affect affecting your mm -hmm. experience right i think it's not you can't define it as a monad it has to be defined as a part of a network um so that's number one and um is that sufficient enough to provide as a definition for consciousness um well um no i think that's not sufficient i think there i would rely on some of the work of antonio damasio's um felt experience where he says hey it is all in the brain but don't forget about the spinal cord <laughs> it's mm -hmm. also there too you know so it's it's this whole like that's you know where the that's um required for it. I don't want to get into, you know, anything spiritual, but I'm saying if that's not there, there's nothing happening. Mm -hmm. Right. If you don't have that, that's necessary. That's how it has to be there. Right. 
Yeah. And if you want to talk about a transcendent reality or a religious, you know, sort of um, understanding, I'm saying, well, fine, but belief does not happen without a spinal cord. It doesn't happen without a brain. Mm-hmm. So it comes before. Just just telling any everybody that just it comes before. It may be preloaded with um, um, a predisposition towards learning religion or this type of thing that I get that's cultural. Okay. And probably conceding to cultural evolution, right? Some mixture between the two of those. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, you get, you gotta be, you gotta be pretty careful. I think with, um, you know, how, how you weigh the evidence. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think, you know, if there's a non-invasive way to better society by doing it kind of Daniel Dennett's way first, if you were going to set up a, a social experiment to like monitor something in real time, then find a problem. Okay, Daniel, what's your what problem are you trying to solve? Does that have a fundament? You think it's going to go this way? Okay, well, let's set up an experiment to see if it goes that way. Daniel and uh, Chris, on the other hand, think it's going to go more weighted this way. And we're like, we'd be like, well, can't say anything because you guys are measuring anything like what how do i oh we got to put a survey at the end <laughs> right like this right and you go well shit, that's not too reliable right but so you know like you know i don't know how would i do it i'd like maybe write a story at the end where you're describing it the best we can where you're like here's here's like you know the after notes right of what the producers of the producers thought. Did we pull it off? Did we ask it in the right way? When we asked this question, could you have done it better? You know, you could do that, right? You'd have to kind of create an experiment. And then you actually got people that are just reacting under some other normal everyday pretense. And you go, wow, maybe, maybe that is like another butterfly taken off and another one and another one and another. And then all of a sudden the field goes, you know, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Very interesting. Like you, you, yeah. And I think if it's, if it doesn't, if it doesn't encapsulate a universal, right. Which is easier said than done. If it doesn't encapsulate a universal, then we have to inherently agree that it's normative. Mm-hmm. So it just means, Hey, this is what everybody agrees on. Right. This is, we're doing this, but you know, I'm not saying that it can't change because it's not fundamentally built on a universal, right? Mm-hmm. Kant tried to do this a little bit differently that there's a ethics, like a universal ethic, right? Underneath everything. And uh, I tend to agree with that, but this is, but, you know, basically what's happened is they've dethroned goodness as the ideal and said that, and kind of gone the other way and, you know, looking downward and, you know, you say up or down, whatever, light, dark, this kind of thing, right? And you you say that you're, it's like you're mounting an, an advertising pain campaign that's going in an opposite direction, something that science shouldn't be, you know, you know, conveying in that in that particular way. Like, you know, when they when they made the the comment that Newton represented light, that you know, that's true. I mean, it was, that's a, a true, genuine 
awakening that's true you have the world here and you have us trying to understand and interpret it and we just got an upgrade to our optics thank you newton wow great right yes and the optics is like a, a real good analogy because he worked in optics and he's like and actually i'm a 50 year 58 year old man and i see in this particular way right now um, does it mean that quantum physics is not real or happening? It's like, but I can't see, you know, in a way I'm kind of poking fun at it because it's like, I can still see the Newtonian world, mm -hmm. but what I've been convinced of is that there's, you know, there's an atomic, you know, we know it's real, right? Yeah. <laughs> because of nuclear bombs and all this kind of stuff. But you have like this thing that we can barely imagine, like a pencil dot on a paper is like, the entire universe to an atom so mm -hmm. we're like these massive like blundering giants walking, you know you know walking around like on 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 nothingness held up by adam that's a beautiful way to put it yeah uh you one thing that that you were also interested in in talking about was uh something about uh, God versus good, which I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what you meant by that. But. Um, the, yeah, the God versus the good is um, the monotheistic God that emerged out of ancient Greece, uh, I, I believe was formed out of this ideal perfection. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, then you saw the Jewish tradition get um, very influenced by the Greek tradition. I'm not saying it predated it. I'm thinking elements of it predated, but it was definitely shaped and partially formed by the, the Western tradition. It had influence. Okay. We can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. um, and then what derived from the Abrahamic? Well, we have uh, Islam and we have Christianity and all mm -hmm. the offshoots, right? Okay, so we've got such a, a massive, I guess, um, revival of, of, of a religion, right? Okay, it does progress through time. And so I'm basically saying, you know, what did all of these have in common? Well, we know it's art, we know that monotheism means that they all came from this one idea of a God, right? And what I'm yep. saying is that within a four or five hundred year period, we we took Greek, which the Bible was originally written in, and it was like, okay, good was something that was abstract that we were moving towards. And if you look at our reality of moving, taking something in an abstract form, we're trying to move it into a more concrete thing that we understand. And so we try to imagine it as a as a person. And what's more intuitive, you can easily feel what it means to be like an ideal something, even though you can be like, I kind of understand how it would be to be like God, whatever, blah, blah, right? But you're like, I can't even conceive of it. That's why in the Jewish tree, you're not even supposed to even say Yahweh, right? So anyways, this is kind of the idea. It just gives, it connects with our psyche a little better if we can picture it like a human, right? And so that's what I thought. That's what I think. And... Um, and, and same goes for Jesus, right? I mean, here you've got his son, you've got an ideal man, uh, you know, savior, right? He's going to save the world. Okay, great. 
he's already done that or he's coming back. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But what I do know is that as a heuristic, it's an amazing thing to, or it's something beautiful that you can imagine that you can say, well, I know what the right thing to do here is. What does it mean to be a man? What do I owe my community? Right. I mean, like all the lessons that we learned from the Socratic dialogues. So a noble man, what is a noble man? Okay. Well, it's no longer a Homer inspired or tale of Achilles or a warrior. The hero is an intellectual person, a philosopher. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, I should probably, I should probably get going here pretty soon. I, I, um, sure. I can, I just wrap it up. Oh, what are you, what's your favorite and least favorite philosophers? Well, probably revealing that I love Plato so much, eh? <laughs> oh, not not counting Plato, I should say. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, I I have to say just for a minute. It is, so I, I did this um these uh these custom literary tools, right? Basically, scrapes the indexes of books and tries to figure out who they're talking about the most, and you can kind of have kind of lay a, fa- a groundwork like for uh, a book review, right? A guess of, of where the underlying theme is. We have this thing called the the um, P-A-A, um, I think, filter or something like this, right? So it was this part of the code where it was like, you take off the, pl- the Plato, oh, Plato, Socrates, right? And Aristotle and, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was Alexander the Great, uh, but you take these, the trilogy of those out of it and then it 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 allows at least in the genre it allows the instance count for other other things to kind of surface up and for you to be able to say oh okay so you know in in that sort of curve we take out those like 95 percent of the of the references which were kind of like greek related and like, well, what else kind of surfaced and then you find some interesting things that you don't really pick up normally, right? So um, <clears throat> anyways, I don't know why I thought of that. I mean, I do know why I thought of that, but I won't, I won't, I feel like I'm rambling, but um, besides Plato, who's my, who do I go to the most? I really like Arthur Schopenhauer. Yeah, um, yeah he's, he's really good. Is the opening line to his, um, his thesis document um, on the fourfold route of sufficient reasoning or something like that. It, it's um, it's so beautiful. He, he quotes Plato um, and Kant, and he talks about how we collect things, right? And maybe in our minds, right? Collect and categorize, right? Yeah. And then we simultaneously have this function of parsing, getting rid of things too, right? Like. Right, kind of like shedding things off, right? And how do you do that? Well, you know, and that's that to me, that sort of like working together thing that that uh, Schopenhauer describes in his fourfold route is just absolutely to me how it works. You know, it's just how we, it's how the mind works. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Uh, you know, then fine, layer in Pinker on there on how the mind works. Definitely. I get all that. Sapolsky on behavior. Yeah, I get all that. But yeah. I think there's, I can relate with that sort of fundamental force, right? Of 
I'm battling and I think it's, uh, you know, well, yeah, psychology really takes its roots from philosophy, you know, before, before it became more of a science. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it kind of started more around that, around that time period, really. Uh, Mid 19th century. What would your advice be to young people that are interested in getting started in philosophy? Um, return to the Greek uh, writings and enjoy them. Um, yeah, um, just to try and enjoy yourself and try and find out why ancient Greece is the reason for the classics because there's there's an, a, a vast ocean like we were talking about of amazing inspiration in that time period and it's um if you're a woman try and overlook the idea that it's a male centric it is male centric there is definitely a little bit of that to give it the benefit of the doubt say it's well war was a very um prevalent and Im immediate reality but i will say women had an incredible power and i think the, the greeks knew that too um they just didn't quite write about it and i think that's maybe one of the failings but it gives um it gives females an understanding or a, a call to action basically to say look Maybe I should look at it, try and look at it from positive light and, uh, you know, try and talk about what, what's good, right? And mm -hmm. in our post-modern society, the simple way out is to say, oh, it's crap, it's this and that. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, try and create something. It's a little harder than it looks, right? Yes. So um, that's what I would say is I'd say focus on the classics and... Uh, I don't know ancient Greek. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to get there, but I'd like to get there. I'd like to, if I had the time to learn ancient Greek so that I can kind of try and empathize with the words just a little bit more, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, the younger you are, the easier it is to learn. And I think it'll stay with you a lifetime. Who is your least favorite philosopher? <laughs> well, um, I think it's Nietzsche. I, I, you know, I, 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 um, I find I get very frustrated re reading Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. um, it, but part of it, I, I also know that he's such a brilliant man, and he he's um, was a brilliant man and troubled and. Uh, some of his stuff kind of like you can kind of admit that side of humans right you know sure. i mean there's that idea of an ideal person but there's also a dark side and a reality of people too right and i think that that's not worth forgetting but um i think you need to spend a lot less time pointing out those things i think they're important to point out but then you kind of return back and say all right then it you know the ideal looks a little bit different you know 
we've taken that into consideration, but don't dichotomize and say, you know, one is just tear down one and then, you know, use the second one, you know, kind of thing that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you need to really think about, you know, what the value of the past was for sure. And, uh, well with Nietzsche, he, um, he's, he's, he's very talented writer. Um, I, one thing I will say that I really can emphasize with empathize with is that there was one, um, the scene, I, I can't remember what book it was, but he, um, wrapped his arm around the horse and he mm -hmm. just collapsed. Um, I think it was gay science. And, uh, and I, and I thought to myself, I go, here's a man that I can empathize with. He just loves his mind. Right. I mean, he might be tortured in it, but he's, he's, he's very high functioning in, in introspection and philosophy, right? Like you don't, you, you have to be comfortable with your mind because it's, it's like what you work with all the time, you know? Sure. Right. So anyways, you've got either, you love it or a very, very healthy respect for it. Right. Cause it really defines you. And, uh, I think that he could probably, and he was probably aware, and this is kind of haunting that, he was starting to lose his mind. That's what yeah. I kind of think was really facilitated the breakdown that in combination with just seeing the visual of a horse st strapped like blinders on. Okay. Emaciated. Um, and I want you to think that he just totally one-on-one -on -one empathized with it. And first you kind of have to imagine what is it like to be a horse, right? I mean, kind of Nagel thing or whatever. Right. But, the horse wants to be out in a field, wants to be running around, wants to have other horses around it. Right. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's an animal, it's a mammal, you know, it is, you know, I'm not saying you can totally, um, anthropomorphize a person in that situation. Like we're strapped down we're being, you know, we're carrying shit all the time and this and that. I get it. Horses have been domesticated, but still there's like a healthy respect for another animal. Right. And say, well, does the animal deserve to be, you know, used in that particular way if we don't have to do that? Right. And you can kind of start to have that sort of conversation. And uh, anyways, I think Nietzsche looking at an, an, an analog and just like using pure empathy with this animal, it's like it's it's suffering. Its mind is being completely erased because like it. You know how, how does it remember being able to run in a field you know, like we have this ability to imagine all this sort of stuff and it what i bet you it does a little bit to a degree mm -hmm. but you're absolutely taking away everything from it even since it doesn't have quite the hope mechanism that we have it's like you're completely throwing this animal into a version of hell Like there's no way this animal is, this is the best life for this other, you know, sentient being. Right. And either that resonates with you or you're like, well, it doesn't, you know, sure. I find it shocking if it doesn't resonate with you. Mm -hmm. Cause it's mm -hmm. worth acknowledging, right? Like, yeah. 
is that our starting point, right? You know, I mean, I'm saying species die, but I mean, at what point you could say, yeah, at what point? I mean, bacteria dies. Do I get sad? No. Is a mammal? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, can we at least acknowledge that, you know, that there's something going on there with the slaughtering of the animals and how it's happening and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely uh, certainly a higher level of consciousness if you, if you compare the different, you know, the different you know, levels of, of animals, you know, if you compare a mouse to a horse, for example. Uh, and so there, certainly the pro, let's just say probably the higher level of of consciousness the, the the closer the potential connection that we can form to them because there's just a it's just easier to understand them because of that closer level yeah 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 that's right that's right yeah it's kind of uh, it's kind of a, the you know Socrates is you know, idea of friendship is that you know the is that highest that highest level of of friendship is of of connection you can have with someone else is 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 that that deep intellectual bond. And so naturally, if you if you talk about you know connections between like a human and a horse, for example, it's going to be easier to, to easier to form than with some lower animal. Yeah, I guess I can see your point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I gotta get going because I got a I got an appointment to get to here. Okay. Well, it was great having you on, Daniel. Uh, is there any place that people go to to find out more about you? Yeah, the easiest way is just plank, like a piece of wood, sip, like a hot cup of coffee, planksip.org. That's planksip.org. Yeah, planksip.org. All right. Thanks for coming on. This has been a CounterPoint Media Production, Point Counterpoint. I'm your host, Chris Wright. Thank you.